Lord Jesus, we want to be your people. We want to know the transforming power of your spirit at work within us. Lord, we don't want to just be the same day in and day out. We want to know you closer and closer every day, every week, every month. Lord Jesus, as we search the scriptures, would your spirit be at work in our hearts? Lord God, would you meet with us? In the middle of everything that's going on, whether our hearts are filled with joy or hurt, whether our minds are quiet or rushing, would you meet with us? Would you interrupt us, please? Would you cause us to focus on you yourself? And Lord God, would you transform us? We present ourselves now to you, Lord. We open our hearts for you to speak to us. Would you please speak with us? This morning we are going to be reading um, in the book of Corinthians. So please have your Bibles open. And as you're finding Corinthians chapter 7, I'm just going to echo Tim's words from this morning. Um, Part of our culture as Aussies is that we've inherited a definition of faith where um, anyone's faith is not supposed to touch their, their political sphere or we're not supposed to mix faith and politics or we're not supposed to have them interact. I want to put to you that if, if your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ does not affect how you see the future of, of our country, if it does not affect our behavior and the decisions we make when it comes to voting, then there's something lacking in our faith. As we're going to have a look at this morning in this passage, our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ is supposed to flow in and and soak in and affect every, every part of our life. We're going to be talking about marriage this morning, but it's supposed to affect the way that we um, interact with others, the way we interact with whatever country we find ourselves living in. And we're not supposed to give our allegiance to any political party, as Tim said. It's not supposed to be, oh, you're a Christian, that means you have to vote this way. But our allegiance to Jesus means that we are discerning and we seek to be discerning of any anyone who seeks power and anyone who exercises power. We're called to pray for anyone who exercises authority. One of the great um, fathers of the church during the Reformation, a guy by the name of John Calvin, argued that all authority ultimately comes from God. We see in the scriptures that God raises up kings and he puts kings down for different reasons. He raises up rulers and he removes them. We're always called to pray for those in leadership that they would exercise the authority God has given them in a godly manner. And we are called to be discerning. We're going to recap a little bit this morning, then we're going to get into our passage And if it is not already clear why we've sent the kids out this morning, it will become clear. Recapping Corinthians chapter 6. Right at the end of it, Paul, and this is where we left off in Corinthians, Paul has been saying to the Corinthian church, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him 
in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but comparison term, contrasting term, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And in the original letter to the Corinthian church, there was not then kind of a chapter and verse division. Paul then went on into this next section. When we had a look at this passage last time, we had to talk about the context that Paul was writing into. And we need to have that sitting in the back of our brain this morning because it's going to help us understand what Paul's point is in the passage we're about to look at. We talked about the city of Corinth and we talked about how there were a huge number, more than a thousand, it's recorded, prostitutes at the temple. And that was part of where the wealth of Corinth came from is whether you were visiting for trade or whether you were a local, part of your spiritual rhythm of life, part of just the way you went about living your life was that you would go to the temple and you would worship the gods. You would offer your worship by actually paying uh, and being intimate with a temple prostitute. And we talked about how part of what existed in the framework of their thinking in the Greco-Roman world was was this idea called Platonistic dualism coming from the philosopher Plato, who said, you know, there's a spirit world and there's a physical world. Basically, there's the realm of the forms and then there's this material world and they they don't really connect with each other. So one day you will shed your physical body and go off and be a spirit, which the Bible does not teach. Jesus is the model of resurrection and Jesus has a resurrection body. He's not just a disembodied spirit. And we believe as Christians that death is a state of temporary disembodiment before a new heavens and a new earth with a resurrection body. We do not hold to this idea of Platonistic dualism where the spirit world and the physical world don't touch. That's not what scripture teaches. But what happened is that people who held this Platonistic idea, this dualistic idea, said, you know what, if if we're going to shed the physical and just go and be spirit, then nothing that we do to our physical bodies really matters. So we can go and gain knowledge by going and being involved in all this really messed up stuff and it doesn't kind of scar us spiritually at all. And that's what Paul is preaching against at the end of chapter 6. He's saying your body is a temple. The Holy Spirit lives in you. We spent some time looking at that. Paul goes on and many commentators talk about this next section of Corinthians really being the, the first time that Paul puts aside all the stuff to do with, with leadership and then the stuff to do with temple worship uh, and, and sexuality, which had come into the Corinthian church, which he just needed to address first. And now he says this, all right, let's talk about something that you wrote to me about. So we're going to read through the first seven verses of chapter seven, and then we're going to talk about the really obvious things and some implications for us. Chapter seven, verse one, first Corinthians. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is not good for, sorry, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they had said to him. That's why Paul is quoting them. And he says, okay, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality, literally pornea in the Greek, since sexual immorality or fornication is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. I've colored the words just to help us see 
what Paul's doing here. Okay, Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. That'll be important in a minute. I wish that all of you were as I am. In other words, single and celibate. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. What an awkward passage of scripture. So my apologies to those of us here this morning who are already feeling awkward. It will get a bit more awkward. But this is Corinthians. All scripture is God-breathed, and this is here for our benefit. I'm aware that some of us in the room this morning have been married and aren't, whether it's because of divorce, whether it's because... um, because we've experienced abandonment, whether it's because um, our spouse has passed away, whether we're in the room this morning and we're single because we have not, um, we have not been married or we haven't um, met a person where, where marriage has become the result of that. I'm aware that we are coming from a whole bunch of, of kind of mixed experiences this morning. And here we come to have a look at specifically some, some teaching, this is not all the teaching scripture has for married couples, but this is certainly some of it. And I encourage us, whether we are married people or whether we are single people, this needs to be present in our thinking because even if this does not affect my marriage, this is something which can sit in my mind and in my heart so that I know how to support other married people, so that I know how to encourage them, so that I know how to support them when something's not functioning well, so that I can still... Um, even if I'm not in the game, I can still cheer from the sidelines encouraging things. So we're going to start with some really obvious points this morning. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. These people, the Corinthian church, had written this to Paul, saying, hey, here's what we think. We think it's good for men and women not to have sex at all. Amen. Close your Bibles, we can all go home. We don't teach that in this church. Not a single amen. Okay. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. How on earth had the Corinthian church arrived at this conclusion? The exact same way that they'd arrived at the conclusion that it's okay to sleep with a temple prostitute. This comes back to kind of their their underlying belief system, this idea that that the physical and the spiritual were, were separate and they weren't connected in any way. And so in the same way that you have a ditch on one side of the road, um, which is kind of a, a messy, do-whatever-you-feel-like-liberalism kind of ditch, there's a ditch on the other side of the road, which is um, kind of the opposite. So sometimes this is called kind of the, the Dionysian um, and the Apollonian, or the left wing and the right wing, or whatever it is, the conservative and the liberal. There is a ditch on each side of the road when it comes to Christian theology and practice as well. And so you had a group of Christians, like in chapter 6, who went, you know what, we can just do anything we feel like, and God's just going to forgive us for that. And then you had a group of Christians that went, no, 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 we're not even going to look sideways at each other as husbands and wives. And Paul is now correcting the other ditch on the other side of the road. So here he says, okay, this, this idea they've ended up with is, is sometimes called asceticism. 
which means that people would step back and they go, you know what, this physical world is so messed up, is so rotten, I'm going to completely remove myself from anything to do with the physical, and they would become ascetics. In Christian practice, this ended up um, resulting in, in Christians who would do outrageous, um, physically detrimental things to themselves, that they would literally whip themselves, um, called self-flagellation. They would tear the skin off their own back with a whip. They would crawl through broken glass. Um, so, so one of the guys we chatted about before, um, John Calvin, got caught up in this. A guy that we've heard of, Martin Luther, got caught up in this. And in every age, you've had Christians who've gone, oh, you know, God will just forgive us, we can do whatever we want. And, you've had, and they've been in that ditch. And then you've had this ditch on the other side of the road where Christians have gone, you know what, we are going to completely remove ourselves from anything to do with the physical world. We're not, we're not going to eat food with flavor in it anymore. You know, we're not, we're not going to live inside a house anymore. You know, we're just going to sleep out under the elements so that we can beat and punish our bodies and submit it to Christ. And Paul here is saying, hold your horses. Verse 2, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So Paul is saying, don't, don't swap one extreme for the other. Okay? He, in this verse, is addressing their belief system and how it has come, come into being involved in their faith. But what we need to have a look at here in verse 2, 3, and 4 is that Paul is appealing actually to the values of God at work in this. And this is where we're going with our text this morning, is that the relationship, even the physical sexual relationship between a husband and wife, says something about who God is. This is where we're going to end up this morning. When we look at the inner life of God, the divine triune life of God, that the Father is one with the Spirit and the Son, and the Spirit is one with the Father and the Son, and the Son is one with the Spirit and the Father, each one is connected to the other. They're not separate, but they are distinct. And each one gives glory to the others. The Father was not crucified. The Father gives all authority to the Son. The son says, I only do what I see the father doing. Jesus says throughout John's gospel, I don't call the shots for my own life. I only do what the father tells me to do. But Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. It says in scripture that the spirit, the eternal spirit raised him from the dead. We're told it's the spirit who convicts of sin, the spirit who convicts of righteousness. We're told that it's the spirit that's the first fruits of salvation. Each one gives glory to the other. And the life of God that Jesus reveals to us in Scripture, that is the life that you and I were created to be part of. In the beginning, when God created a garden and put Adam and Eve in it, what he created was for them to partake in this relationship. This is the model for God's very existence. This is what you and I are modeled after, and this is what we were created for. And this is the basis for married life. This is what Paul is calling people back to. This should, be, this should be the undergirding basis for when we reflect on how is my marriage functioning at the moment? How is my family functioning at the moment? Do we give glory to one another? Do we support and release one another? Do we defer to one another in our areas of expertise? And as we see here, Paul is talking about things happening in married couples 
that are leading them away from oneness. Paul here is encouraging them to journey in the direction of oneness. Because sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. Have a look here, verse 2, verse 3. Paul immediately says, actually, this responsibility, this duty, the word that he uses, he talks to the men first. It is your duty. You should fulfill this. There is a duty in a marriage relationship for us as men to be looking towards how is my wife going at the moment? How is she going and where can I where can I engage to meet her needs? If my wife leaves the house and she is emotionally distraught, if she is feeling ripped off, if she's angry, if she is hungry to, to connect, if that is the way that she leaves the house, Paul makes it very clear here that when separation has been going on, Satan comes in and that's where temptation takes place. And part of me being aware of the connectedness and the level of intimacy that I'm having with my wife is me knowing that Satan will attack her if he gets the chance. And I must defend my wife. That is part of my role as a husband. And it doesn't just mean uh, when it comes to sexual intimacy. It comes here to going, you know, how separate have we been from one another? Is there an emotional separation which has been going on? Is there a physical separation which has been going on? Have I been completely absent from her world because of work or because of stress or because of my own uh, emotional condition? When separation happens, the enemy comes in. One other obvious point before we move on is this. In verse 7, Paul talks about celibacy. And let's talk about this for a minute. Paul here makes it very clear that in his mind, celibacy is a gift. And in the same way that we can see people who get up um, to exercise leadership and they don't have the gift of leadership, or people go to exercise, um, say, counselling or hospitality, and they don't have the gift of hospitality, or they don't have the gift of counselling, when people when people come to sit and, and to pray with us and exercise discernment, and that person doesn't have the gift of discernment, we can feel that something is just not plugged in right. And in the same way, Paul here talks about celibacy as a gift. Now, I have my own opinion about the way Christians throughout history have, have applied celibacy, particularly to priests. And when we apply a rule to someone where it is not their gift, things don't work out particularly well. But there are some people who God gives this as a gift. And if God has given you that gift, praise God. It is a good gift. God does not give bupkis gifts. He does not give broken gifts. God gives good gifts. And Paul here is saying, I wish everyone had this gift. I wish that you all were as I am. Paul finds joy and peace in the service of the Lord because this gift has released him in a powerful way. And there are some people who are released in a powerful way to exercise that gift. Let me preach to myself for a minute. We as Christians need to be incredibly careful that we don't try and fix single people. Okay? 
And that single... Now that is, that is single people... That is single people who have never been married and single people who have been married. Okay, People that find themselves in singleness on the other side of marriage. It is not necessarily something to be fixed. Okay, The Lord gives good gifts. Let's go back to picking on the married people for a minute. Okay. We, we got to make it a little bit funny this morning, okay? Because it's just awkward for everyone in the room. One of the things, and we have to talk about what are some of the things then that get in the way of oneness, particularly some of the things, some of the very simple, straightforward, practical things that get in the way of husbands and wives actually having um, a healthy and holy um, life where, where sex is part of that because God created it. And the first thing... Let's go back. I've jumped the gun a second. The first thing is we have to deal with the teaching that we have received historically. So one of the things that we have received from those who came before us, from the tail end of the Victorian era of British culture, is this idea that we just don't have these conversations. We don't talk about it. It's not appropriate. The rest of the world has these conversations, but you know, as soon as you give your life to God, you don't have these conversations. What we have sometimes ended up with is a view particularly around, um, around sex and having kids and, and around procreation, all that sort of stuff, which is simply not scriptural. Go home and read Song of Songs. It is a book of poetry. It is a book of beauty. There is stuff in there which is not for kids. Kids don't, if you're under 18, don't go home and read Song of Songs. Okay, ignore it. God creates good things. Okay, and we can end up with an idea that sex is gross or sex is dirty or sex is filthy or sex is something that is never supposed to be talked about. But what happens then is when things aren't quite right, when things aren't going well, as Christians we have no one to, no one to talk to, no one to ask. We are locked out from actually having any conversations that might help the joy of marriage to be released. So we have to get away from this idea that sex is gross, okay? But we also have to get away from this idea that culture gives us, which is that sex is the ultimate thing. We, we are in an incredibly saturated culture that sex is used to sell anything and everything. I've unplugged the aerial from my TV at home because any time that we put a show on, I, I go, I, I want to decide what my kids are going to see because I know that sexual content is in everything. My wife and I often we go, oh, cool, let's, let's pick a TV show to watch. So we'll, we'll, we'll hop online and we'll go, okay, we'll start watching this. And halfway through the first episode, there's sexualized content. And you're like, I don't want to watch this. I don't want, I don't want these pictures in my head. I don't, want, I don't want this content in my life. It is simply everywhere. We live in a culture that says sex is like its own God. You know, come and worship at the altar of sex. You know, it's, it's the be all and the end all. So we need to be able to critique our culture and go, that is not, that is not the case. We also need to be like with politics, to have a crisp eye going, you know what, everything that I have received and been taught, I still need to go back to the word of God. This is our basis. This is our measure here. So with that in mind then, let us talk about some of the things that get in the way of oneness and married couples actually being able to celebrate and have this as, an, as part of their life. There are things that get in the way that are physiological, illness, injury, surgery, uh, medication, simply the growing older. It changes all of these things. This facet of a married life 
Paul doesn't say in this passage of Scripture which age group he's talking to. He does not single out a particular age group and say, you know what, these people have, have stopped uh, being intimate with each other, but these ones, yeah, they're, they're okay, they're going fine. He doesn't single out an age group. He doesn't talk about what happens when illness or injury occurs. He doesn't talk about when someone is hospitalized. He doesn't talk about any of the health problems that can happen where actually sexual intimacy between a husband and wife simply cannot function. Okay? Paul doesn't talk about those things. But if that is something that is going on in our marriage, whether it is something going on now, something that has gone on, or something that goes on in the future, we must talk with each other about it. In marriage counseling, one of the most extraordinary things, it never ceases to amaze me, is that husbands and wives don't talk. And particularly when it comes to something which is affecting their physical intimacy with each other. If a husband and wife don't talk about it, sometimes it's no use coming to a pastor because it's just then bringing me into the awkwardness of that conversation. Okay, Husbands and wives, we need to talk about these things, but we also need to talk about where we're feeling ripped off. We need to talk about unmet expectations. We need to talk about ways that, that our emotions are involved. We need to talk about how we're feeling. We need to be real about the effects of age or medication or injury or illness. We need to be able to talk about if something physical has gone on, whether it's man flu or something else, we must be able to have a, a language for us as a couple. All right? I'm not, please hear me very clearly this morning. I'm trying to be lighthearted because this is an awkward conversation. But I, I in no way want this, this to come across as crass. Okay? This is something beautiful God has created, but it's something that we can add kind of mystery or, or mystique to where, it, where that is not the case. We have to be real about it. We also have to be real about abuse. I think this picture is supposed to be funny, and it's not. Abuse is a real thing that happens, and rape happens in Christian marriages. Sexual assault happens in Christian marriages. Physical trauma happens in Christian marriages. Conflict happens in Christian marriages, and all of these things affect oneness. And often when we talk about physical assault or sexual assault or rape, it's something perpetrated by men against women because generally men uh, with a Y chromosome and a high level of testosterone are physically stronger. And they're the ones who take their will and force it upon the other person. It is not always the case. When this has happened, again, we have to talk about it. If this is something that has gone on in our past, if this is something which has started happening in our present, if this is something that comes up in the future, it is not the way God has designed marriage or sex to work. It does not reflect the oneness and the beauty of the inner life of God, and we need to be real about it. If this is something which is going on or has happened, then it means that the I'll share a, share a story. There was a man I caught up with, and he, um, he'd been kicked out by his family, and there was an accusation that had been raised um, that he was mistreating his wife. Now, the reality was that he wasn't mistreating his wife. The reality was that when his wife was very, very young, she was mistreated by her family members, that she was sexually assaulted when she was a child. And it had never been talked about. It had never been addressed. Um, there'd never been a space for her to journey through the grief and the trauma um, and to actually seek the Lord and spend the time necessary, and man, it takes time, to journey 
to something that could be considered stability or healing in that. But what it meant was that she had carried those things into her marriage relationship. And whenever physical intimacy was something which was happening or was going to happen, the fear that came over her was extraordinary. And that, that ended up being something that got leveled at her husband, that it was his fault. Again, because when we keep things in the dark, they have power over us. And when we don't deal with these things, it means that sexual intimacy is less than what it could be. For those of us who, who maybe are spouses or have been or, or will become spouses of people who have had a severe form of trauma or abuse or assault go on, we need to understand that part of, of, of loving that other person is laying our, li- our life down and even laying down our sexual desires or our felt needs in order for that person to journey through whatever they need to journey through to healing and wholeness. And that's a very difficult thing for any couple. It's a very difficult thing for the spouse who is feeling ripped off, who is feeling deceived sometimes. But it is a journey that God can lead people through so that they can actually have freedom in their marriage. We need to talk about it. We need to talk about conflict as well. And we need to talk about sin. We need to talk about anger and disappointment and revulsion. It is something that takes place in a marriage where over time someone can end up actually really, really, really not liking the person that they're married to. Even if they both have a strong, dynamic faith. This is a a famous painting called American Gothic and apparently these people got along really well. But something that can happen, something that can happen in our relationships is that as we grow... um, As we go on, and maybe for some people they experience this immediately when they were married. For some people, it's something that happens over time. We grow apart. That there becomes a distance between us. And maybe because of conflict, maybe because of sin, maybe because of anger, maybe because of disappointment, and a person can end up feeling um, revulsion, that they are revolted against the person that they are married to. There is, only, there is only one way to deal with that. And Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. When the Pharisees come and they say, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus says, the only reason that divorce exists, that Moses even gave it to God's people whatsoever, is because of the hardness of their hearts. Uh, a minister said to me once, Divorce happens because someone has hardened their heart and they refuse to soften it again. And no matter whether we have a little bit of conflict going on or a significant amount of conflict, no matter how long it has been since we have shared the marriage bed together or even slept in the same room or even slept in the same house, as happens between some married couples, no matter how long it has been, the only way forward is for two people to soften their hearts and seek the Lord. That's the only way forward through conflict is for two people to soften their hearts and seek the Lord. There was a couple that I met with some time ago and, um, and they had some very, very serious issues going on. And let me just say, no one in the room knows who they are. Um, and you wouldn't know them even if you knew their name, so don't guess. I know you're guessing. <laughs> and... 
And when I met with this couple, the wife desperately wanted to save her marriage. And as I sat with them, you know, I like to think I'm pretty good at reading people's body language and and eye contact and some of that sort of stuff, you know, interpersonal sort of communication. And and this this husband had me sold that he was committed to going forward. That I was working with two people who were committed to saving their relationship. And it became incredibly clear, incredibly clear shortly after that, within within a week that this man had no intention of saving his marriage whatsoever. Uh, years ago, I asked my dad, Look, Dad, how do you do marriage counselling? You know, you've been doing it for kind of 30 years. How do you do marriage counselling? And his response was, he said, son, he said, if, if, he said, I had a couple turn up once and they were on their way to the registry and they said, look, you've got 20 minutes to save our marriage. And his response was, well, you've left it, you've left it about four or five years too late. We can't do anything in 20 minutes. You've already made your decision. Dad said every couple, he would give them basically three options. Number one um, is you don't fix it. And if this is something which is going on in a marriage, and in one way sexual intimacy is a litmus test for distance and for anger. That's if, if there's not physiological stuff involved. If, if it's conflict, if it's anger, if it's disappointment, then option number one is that we don't fix it. And whatever happens, happens. And some people, their relationship is already at that point where they've both decided to bail on each other and there is nothing to fix that they have committed to the hardness of their heart. Option number one. And we'll, we'll, again, we'll talk about, come back and talk about abuse and trauma in a moment because that's something else. Um, and abandonment. Option number one, we don't fix it. Option number two, we pretend to fix it. And this is the majority of decisions I have found in marriage counselling that couples come with, is that they're going to pretend to fix it. Someone is going to, on the outside, look as though they're prepared to change, but on the inside, they're not prepared to change. (coughs) Option number three is that you fix it properly, and that involves the hardest work from both couples, uh, from both persons in the couple. It's the hardest way through to deliberately soften our heart and make ourselves vulnerable when we don't want to be vulnerable. Very, very difficult to do. The aim of all of this that Paul has been talking about is oneness. If if someone is in a marriage relationship where, where sex is being used as a form of bribery, as a form of payment for services rendered, you know, you do this particular thing for me and then I will have sex with you, that means that sex has become a control mechanism in that marriage. If sex is being used as a way to oppress someone else or to debase them or to attack the image of God and the inherent dignity that that person carries, then that is not the way God has designed it to function. And if a person is being abused, please, Please come and talk to me, okay? Because the Lord does not... I've got to word this very carefully. When Jesus talks to the Pharisees and they say, may, may a man divorce his wife for any reason, Jesus says to them, uh, you know, about Moses, and then he says, if... if If a man divorces his wife for any reason other than sexual unfaithfulness, he commits an act of adultery. It is not saying that men are the only ones 
who are able to divorce their spouse. If in a relationship sex is being used as a way to attack another person or to debase another person, to attack the image of God in that person, then that is sexual unfaithfulness. And it needs to be addressed. So for us as married couples, we have this immense difficulty when it comes to sex that we can easily let it become something that it was never supposed to be, something incredibly negative. We can treat it as something other than what God intended it to be, which is a reflection of the divine triune life of God. Let me go back here to this. So if oneness is the goal, and if Paul is talking to the Corinthian church saying because sexual immorality is occurring all around you, husbands and wives should actually be having this as a healthy part of their relationship. If that was going on in Corinth, how much more is that going on now? So I want to say this morning very simply, husbands and wives, check up with one another. Have conversations that maybe have been awkward conversations to have. If there is resentment or disappointment, if there are questions, if there's physiological stuff, even if there has been trauma, then there is a kind of freedom we are able to have with one another which the Lord will lead us into. Oneness is the goal. In any partnership, there is a particular level of intimacy required to maintain that partnership. If you were going to have a business partnership with someone from the other side of the world and you never saw them and they never wrote to you, then you'll probably go, we can't really have a business partnership without some connectedness going on. If two churches theoretically were going to be in partnership for the sake of the gospel, or if a church was going to be part of a union of churches, there would be need there would need to be some connectedness going on in order for that union to function in a healthy way. And this is the role of sex in a marriage, okay? Sex is not the be-all and end-all of a marriage, but it's a form of connectedness to maintain the partnership. It is a way that we connect in order to maintain the partnership, and it reflects the divine triune life of God. So where do we go with this? What do we do with this? Let me take you back to the words of Paul here told you this would be important. Verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Paul has a mixed group of people in his church who have have come from all different sort of backgrounds, had all different sort of experiences, they have all different sort of uh, opinions, and they have all different sort of marriages. And Paul here is saying, here are some great guidelines, okay? This is is actually a a good way that it could work for, you know, to take a break for different reasons or or to spend time with each other for different reasons. And then he says this, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Paul is writing as a single man. And he's saying to these couples, here here are some valuable things. Take these things away and think about them. And I can't do more than Paul this morning and say that. Take these things away and think about them. Take these things away and go, all right, this is not a rule that I have to apply But you know what, is there a kind of oneness in a marriage that is yet to be experienced? What sort of things would be getting in the way of that? What prevents oneness? I'm going to pray and then we're going to do one more song to finish. Lord Jesus, I'm aware that that within a marriage relationship, the deepest kind of hurt can happen. 
the most extraordinary attacks on identity and self-worth, the deepest kind of regret, the, the deepest kind of ripped off feeling, all of those things can happen inside a marriage. And Lord, it should not surprise us that you used the picture of marriage to describe your relationship with your people. And so, Lord, we look to you as our example, that you are faithful, even though your people may not be faithful. You are loving, even though your people may be less than loving. Lord, you, you laid your life down for your bride. So, Lord God, we ask that you would be our guide that your voice would be the voice in our marriage. Your voice would be the voice in our heart. Lord, we commit the journey to you. And Lord, I want to pray for those of us this morning who maybe your Holy Spirit is tapping on the heart and saying there's, there's some hardness of heart going on here. Lord God, journey us through that, please. We don't want to be people who are, who are hard-hearted. We want to be people who are soft-hearted. But Lord God, where something has happened, where something is in the way, where, where something that is not of you has taken place, Lord God, journey us out of that and into freedom. Holy Spirit, let us know the power of your healing touch in our hearts and in our marriages. Lord God, we want our marriages to reflect your goodness and your life. Please help us journey in that direction. Lord God, give us great love for one another. In awkward conversations that might need to happen, give us your words, Lord Jesus. And when we need to not speak, help us to stay silent. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be present with us. We know the enemy comes in to attack marriages all the time. Please be with us. Please help us. Please protect us. We commit ourselves to you in your name and for your kingdom's sake. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.